going on in the life of the church. So let's take some time and open up God's word and take a look at the scriptures. Together this afternoon, we'll be in Psalm 27. Psalm 27. There's a series of messages out of the Psalms that we've selected, half a dozen Psalms that fall into the category called Psalms of Confidence. It's our series, it's called Songs of Confidence. We need confidence in the Christian life. You need confidence. I need confidence. If we're truly going to be a disciple of Jesus, if we're going to follow him, if we're going to obey him, if we are going to be corporately the kind of local church that God has called us to be, confidence is required. Confidence is needed. If we're going to take discipleship seriously, if we're going to worship together seriously, if we're going to share, if we're going to serve, if we're going to give, if we're going to spread the gospel to our neighbors. All these things require confidence in our souls. If we're going to encourage one another, correct one another, receive correction from one another, confess our sins to one another, carry one another's burdens, all the things that we're called to as a local church, we will not move forward except that there be confidence in our hearts. Trust and confidence seem to be one and the same thing. If you go to your dictionary and look up definitions of both, you'll be a little bit hard-pressed to distinguish between the two, and some try to make some distinction. They seem quite synonymous. But I'm going to use confidence like this, that we, that we trust certain things, but that confidence, while it's sort of the other side of the coin of trust, it's part of trust, that confidence is the motivation that makes your trust active. That the confidence is sort of the, the energy of your trust. And the reason I make that distinction and just want to use the terms like this is because I think we all know how easy it is to say, I believe something, but that thing I say I believe is not actually actively moving me and changing me. So I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that I am forgiven. I believe that. I trust that he did that. And yet I know how easy it is to wake up tomorrow, to live each day so unaware, unaffected by the reality that I am forgiven. I'm not even sure we in the room have enough imagination to even picture truly what it means to be totally forgiven. I think if we really got it, it would be so far beyond. I had no idea. I had no idea it was that great. So this, the distinction that I'm trying to make is like when God's Spirit begins to build in our hearts confidence, it begins to bring the energy into that faith and begins to move. I'm ready to act now. I not only believe this, but I'm confident in it. I have confidence. So I'm, I'm ready to act. I'm ready to move. I'm ready to, to take this doctrine. I'm ready to take this truth. I'm ready to take this reality and, and move into life with it. Do something with it. See it brought to life and brought to action. 
James teaches us this very concept where he tells us this faith that's inactive is not genuine faith to begin with. It's no real faith at all. And isn't this a, a danger that we all find in ourselves? Oh, I believe. I believe this. I'll nod an assent to this and to this and to this. But is your life changed? Is it, is it an active power in your life? And it needs to be. And for that, we're looking to these psalms, these songs of confidence, to say, Lord, take these truths, take these things that we all say we believe, and add confidence to the mix so that we begin to walk and live and live in the good of these wonderful truths. The psalm today is a song of confidence in the midst of trials in our times. We're going to read the psalm in it. David refers to trouble, to trials, to enemies seeking to harm him, to being abandoned by loved ones, about being uncertain about the future. This psalm is a tool to combat worry, fear, and anxiety. Troubles that are around us that cause us to worry, to be afraid, to be filled with anxiety, the uncertainty of the future that causes us to be worried and fearful. This psalm is a tool for your soul, for my soul. My desire in this series is that whatever psalm we preach from, you'd go home that day and say, ah, it's my new favorite song. It's my song. Ah, Psalm 27 is for me. And it's it's there for the taking. And every time fear or worry or anxiety springs up in your soul, you think, ah, I'm running to Psalm 27. And I'm going to go take a bath in Psalm 27 again and have it wash my soul free of this worry, this anxiety. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing. Have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, answer me. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. Oh, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. 
For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Father, sing this song into our hearts today so that we leave saying, now it's my song. This is our song. This is the song we sing. And this is the song that stirs up in our hearts and infuses our hearts with confidence and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the message in a sentence. Those who trust the Lord and long for his presence, find confidence even in the worst of times. Those who trust in the Lord and who long for his presence find confidence even in the worst of times. We'll break down the message today with three points. David's confidence, secondly, David's desire, and thirdly, David's prayer. As I prayed and mentioned already, my, my hope is that this will become your song, my song, so that we can change that outline from David's confidence to my, my confidence, confidence, from David's desire to my desire, from David's prayer to my prayer. Let's begin with David's confidence, verses 1 through 4 is the first section. And David charges in and seems to sort of explode with confidence from the outset emphasize that his confidence is in the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? I'm not afraid of anything. The Lord is my salvation. I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm not afraid of anything. Because the Lord is with me. No fear. No fear in my heart. God is that to me. It begins laying the foundation. Confidence in the Lord is the key. Confidence in the wrong thing still works. You know this. You've experienced this. Confidence is confidence. People with confidence do better. When you're confident, you're at, you're at your best. You're, you're doing better. You, you know this. David is saying, look, we're not looking for any run-of-the-mill confidence we're not looking for the wrong kind of confidence we're looking for this kind of confidence confidence that is in the lord the bible is adamant about this truth the fact that placing trust in and having confidence in the lord is the only sustainable confidence the scriptures warn time after time about putting your trust your confidence in the wrong thing. And putting it in anything or anyone besides the Lord will prove time after time to be short-lived and ultimately will prove to be destructive. The Bible gives us a long list of things not to put your trust in. Do not put your trust in men. Do not put your trust in the legs of men, whatever that means. 
Do not put your trust in horses. Do not put your trust in chariots. Do not put your trust in armies. Do not put your trust in your own understanding. Do not put your trust in riches. Do not put your trust in the praises of others. These are all things that we are tempted to draw confidence from. Very easily, very naturally. Riches, praises, good opinions of others, strength, armies, all things we could easily and to some sense understandably place our confidence in. And the Lord says, no, no, it won't work. It won't sustain it won't hold you. It won't keep you. It's short-lived. Put your trust in the Lord. Three things David says about his confidence about the Lord. He says, the Lord is my light. He's my light. Light here, just a, a metaphor of what is right, what is good. It's about righteousness. Light can, can refer to joy and knowledge and understanding and holiness and, and goodness and righteousness. And here David is not really specific about how he's using light or what for, but the, but the whole context is about the kind of darkness of opposition and threat to his well-being. Dangers, people out to get him, that kind of darkness. And so his claim is that the Lord is my light against all those kinds of problems. This is the only reference in the Old Testament where it's stated God as his light. Talks about aspects of God that are like light. This is the only time he's described as light, like he is my light. Not God shines a light on my path. God illuminates my heart so that I can understand. No, God is my light. See, the, there's a personal aspect to what David is beginning to build. What's mentioned here is just like a seed that gets expanded throughout the Bible. Now we get into the New Testament and Jesus shows up. And who is Jesus? He is the light of the world. Himself, his person, he is the light. He doesn't come with a flashlight to show you the way. He is the light. This theme gets developed all the way to the very end. In Revelation, the last two chapters of Revelation 21, where it begins to describe, John begins to describe the new Jerusalem, the new city of God. And he writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. How much of this David understood, I don't know, but he writes this psalm and he says, the Lord is my light. He says, the Lord is my salvation. And this, in here, the word salvation is talking about his deliverance from the trouble, from the enemies that are taking. The Lord is my salvation. He's going to save me. He's going to rescue me from this trouble. Whoever is opposing me, my enemies who are out to eat my flesh up, to tear me apart, to ruin my life, those kinds of enemies, God is my salvation. 
We all experience trials in life. And trials are difficult and trials are one thing. Cars break down, roofs leak, sewers back up. But when there's real people out to get you, it's a trial like no other, is it not? It's one thing for the car to break down. It's another thing for somebody to break down your car. (laughs) When there's a person behind it, when somebody has you in their sights and they are out to destroy you, hurt you, now it's personal. Now it's a trial of a whole different color, a whole different feel. And that kind of a trial, David saying, and God is my salvation. And he is the stronghold of my life. He's the place I'll be safe. He's where my soul is secure, protected. He provides the protection that I will need in him, by being with him, by being near to him. There's no need to look elsewhere. When I'm with him, he's my stronghold. He keeps me. He protects me. The summary in this first point, David begins by stating that his confidence is in the Lord even in the worst of times. He comes on strong. Big positive statements, grandiose statements. I'm not afraid of anything because the Lord is my salvation. He's my help. He's my protection. He's the light. He presents God in an extremely personal way. God does not just help him. God is his help. The person of God is his help. God is far more personally at the center of things. David sees God as someone more than someone who can help, more than someone who sends help, more than someone who orders help for him. For David, it's personal. It's the Lord himself. We move from there to David's desire, point two, verses four through six, David's desire. And here, this wonderful verse, one thing. Have I asked of the Lord? That will I seek after. David's one thing. Do you have a one thing in your life? Here's a question for you. Okay, I want to grant you access to God right now. You got one thing you can ask for. What would it be? Okay, God's giving you a, a, a blank check, a ticket. What would you want from God? If you could ask for one, one thing, thing right, right now. now. can't pay the rent I'll take some extra money I can guess if you're a mom I'll bet I know what was on your list something about your kids ended up on that list right there David comes out and says you know there's really one thing There's really one thing that I desire. There's one thing that I long for. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the time. Now, when you read that, when you hear that, I'm not sure what runs through your mind. It's like, okay, wait a minute. It's like, is David saying like, he just wants to go to church all the time? 
I just want to go to church and sit, sit in a church meeting and just never leave. Like he really likes going to church. And so I just want to get to the house of the Lord and I want to be there. Is he looking for a career change? You know, I'm, I've, had, I've done the shepherding thing. Now I'm a commander in the army. I'm doing the king thing. But you know what? I'm getting a little spent on that. I think I'd like a career change. I'm putting in my papers for the priesthood so that I can go be at church all the time. Is that what David is talking about? If that were the case, this would probably become a little bit less your song, my song. We're kind of like, maybe we have to part ways from David at this point. I'm not sure I really want what David wants here. But David is talking about something different. David had a singleness of heart for God's presence. David recognized something about God's presence, and it captured him, captured his heart. We all get the concept of having one thing in your life. Because you know what that's like if you've had a one thing in your life. You know what it's like when you, when you have a purpose and you know where you're heading and you know what you want and you know what you're about and you know where you're going to invest yourself and you know what you're going to give yourself to and you know where you want to go. You've got a singleness of purpose in your life. You've got it figured out and you, and you get, get to, to it. it. And, and you're at your best, best because you answer the big question and you've got to figure it out. out. You, you know who you are, you know where you're heading, you know what you're going to do. And so, so you get out of the business and you have all kinds of confidence and strength to do it because you've found your one thing. We also all know what it's like to not have a one thing. And here, we tend to be at our worst. And for some of you in some transition of life, just know it's, it's okay, okay? Teenagers, you're, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? You're trying to make life decisions. It's, it's okay, but the point is simply this. When we don't know, when we're undecided, when we're not sure who we are, we're not sure where we're going, we're at our worst. Our confidence is down. It's, it's low, and we find ourselves inactive and tentative and fearful. Because we know this, because we experience this, the danger can be to get too desperate about filling in that one thing blank on your life. i got to find something. I've got to do something. I've got to have something. I've got to have a one thing. Because I know if I just had a one thing, then my confidence would go up and I could be at my best. So we put in there a career we put an educational goal in there. We put marriage in there. We put family in there. We put financial success in there. We put some cause that seems to appeal to us and seem right to us. And we throw ourselves in it. We write in our, in our one thing blank. This is it for me. And we get started. And we feel enlivened with confidence. But the reality, friends, is, and while it's good to pursue so many things, only God was meant to be our one thing. There is a blank on each of our hearts. What is your one thing? And David is coming to terms with it. And David grasped that God is meant to be himself 
in that spot. That's how we were created. That's how humanity was designed back in the Garden of Eden. When he created the garden and created the man and the woman and placed them in there, there in fellowship with God, communing with God, God walking with them, them together, God here, you here, us together, knowing each other, walking together. And whatever your job is, whatever your life goal is, whatever you're assigned to, whatever your lot in life, the one thing, the main thing is that we're here together, walking together in harmony, you and God, God and you. God being your God, you being God's person. That's the way it was designed. That's the way it was meant to be. But of course, it got disrupted, terribly disrupted. When the people said, you are not going to be my God. I will be my own God and I will go my own way. And the rebellion happened. And the break, the separation took place at that moment, it was God in his kindness, in his wisdom, many, many years later, calls Moses, begins enacting a plan. Moses, I want you to build something. I want you to put together a thing called a tabernacle because I got a plan in mind for getting you and me back together. I want you to set up a tent that can be a place where I can dwell among you, among the people. This is what David would have been familiar with. A tabernacle at some point, a physical temple being built, but this was the place where God lived. This was the place that God had ordained and marked out and said, I want this place to be the place where I will put my presence here and make a way for you, for the people, to have access to me again. And in that temple, it's filled with furnishings, all being, as we know in, in, in Hebrews, a copy and a shadow of a heavenly reality. And yet they would walk into this temple and there was a place to wash to be made clean. There was an altar where a sacrifice could be burnt. And in that knowing, on my way to the presence of God, I see that a sacrifice is needed for me to step one more step forward, for me to get closer to the presence of God, for God to turn his face to me. He would have to turn his face away from another and the bull the goat, the lamb, would be sacrificed. And because it was done, it would open up a way. And men and women, again, through that sacrificial system, through that copy of something greater, that shadow of something that was still to come, became the means for people to come back into the presence of God. And David walked that path. When he got near to the presence of God, he says, this is where I want to be. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to gaze at the beauty that God would make a way for me who have 
failed God, disobeyed God, and yet this gracious God makes a way for another to pay the price so that I could enter in and once again behold and see and gaze and see the beauty of it all. The beauty that was lost to me, the beauty that I was blind to, the beauty that I was cut off from, now I'm able to come back and look, behold, and gaze. And because of this, David, David's desire was that his heart was preoccupied with the person and will of God. I just want to sit here and gaze. I want to seek. I want to understand. And seeking the Lord has... You know, we, we use that phrase, you need to seek the Lord. And, you know, if you've been around church for a while, it's one of those wonderful Christianese kinds of phrases. You've got to seek the Lord. And most, most of us kind of know what, what that, that means. means. But, but not, not everybody. everybody. And, and, and that, that concept, concept of seeking the Lord is, 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 is more than just, just I'm going to stop thinking, thinking about the Lord. Lord. It's, it's, it's thinking about, about the Lord in a particular way. way. To seek the Lord, to genuinely seek someone, is to begin to, uh, to, begin to understand, well, what do they like? What do they dislike? What pleases them? What displeases them? I am seeking you out. This is great marriage counseling. You need to seek your spouse. You need to understand what makes them tick. What do they love? What do they hate? What do they despise? What do they favor? And this is the concept of David saying, I want to seek the Lord. Because when I begin to understand what pleases the Lord, I begin to realize what pleases me. Because pleasing the Lord brings a pleasure. Because I'm gazing at his beauty. Because he's my salvation. Because he's my light. Because he's my strong tower. And when I find things, when I'm seeking the Lord and I discover there are things that are displeasing to the Lord, then it begins to affect my soul and I realize, why would I want to do something that's displeasing the one who's beautiful that I'm gazing at, that I'm amazed at his grace, that I'm entering into his presence. And it begins to change us and fashion our hearts and make us more and more into the image of sons and daughters. When God's, God's grace comes into a person's heart, this is one of the evidences of that grace, a preoccupation with who God is and his will. It should be characteristic of every Christian. When God's grace illuminates, opens wide your heart, the Spirit of God comes into your heart. There's something there so that David says, well, there's just really one thing that I want. There's one thing that I want to seek after. I want to know the Lord. I want to be with the Lord. I want to look upon his beauty. I want to understand who he is. I want to be in his presence. Even though you and I stumble, we falter, we get sidetracked, when the grace of God comes in, there's still somewhere in there, sometimes deep, sometimes somewhat clouded, but there is still a one thing. There's one thing inside that heart. There's one thing I want. Oh, how did I lose my head? 
How did I get off track? Why did I make something else my one thing? Oh, the, the longer I was on this wrong one thing, I begin to realize the ache in my heart because in the bottom of my soul, there's one thing truly that I want. It's to know the Lord, to be with the Lord, to please the Lord, to not displease the Lord. Folks, this desire connects to our confidence. My desire and preoccupation for being in God's presence, for admiring who he is, that is the source that produces my confidence in the Lord. My desire for the Lord produces my confidence in the Lord. If you want to grow in your confidence in the Lord, work on your desire for the Lord. Press in. Work at, develop, think about, Put effort towards your desire. Cultivate your desire that you have for the Lord. The more I gaze, the more I meditate, the more confidence I have. This is the secret to having confidence in God. No desire for God, no confidence in God. Great desire for God, great confidence in God. Then we get to verses 7 through 12, David's prayer, third point. At this point, there's a change in tone in this psalm. The, the mood seems to shift, seems to swing. It feels different. Something has changed. Technically, God shifts from being spoken of in the third person now to being addressed directly. The first part comes out of the gate filled with confidence, braggadocious, big statements. And now we have a second part here sort of mixed with even desperate prayer. There's some scholars that would conclude, oh, this must have been two psalms that somebody put together. They can't be one and the same. I think that distinction is unnecessary. Psalm so confidence. Now, many, many categorize the second half as being a song of lament. The distinction is unnecessary, though it's good that they are what they are. James Boyce says, better to see these as two movements of the same symphony. Isn't this an honest example of our hearts before the Lord? If we could track each other's prayer and actually listen in and hear is this is this really so uncommon with the lord i'm afraid of nothing but lord be merciful to me you will never leave me please lord don't ever leave me i will triumph and my enemies will be defeated oh lord keep me from falling do you, do you pray like that? I pray like that. And I, I can be one second here, the second second there. I find myself talking out of both sides of my heart. I want to see your face, Lord. And please don't hide your face from me. Is it really so strange? Now, if you're merely a positive thinker here this afternoon, stick with verses 1 through 6, leave 7 through 12 out. You have no use for it. But if you're a real person, a real human being with a real heart, 
not looking to go through life deluding yourself with fantastical ideas. If you really want to be honest before the Lord, you need 1 through 6, you need 7 through 12. And we need to get before the Lord. The point is this, having confidence in the Lord is hard won. It's not just a declared statement. It's not just a positive confession. It's hard won. There's realities going on. His confident declarations are now being worked through with God in prayer. His gazing and his seeking are actions that are broadening his view and his understanding of, of who God is. He's working it out. He's working it through on his knees before the Lord. And he talks about approaching God's face. This is really what it's all about. God, you say, seek my face. Oh, Lord, it's your face that I want to seek. Long before this, Moses had a similar desire. Oh, Lord, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. God was very gracious, but he did make it very clear. You cannot see my face. For any man that sees my face will not leave, live. This was shortly after the golden calf incident. The sin of the people created a veil between them and God's face. I think you might understand the concept of a face being hidden if you've been a child or you have children, you've done something wrong and your children have done something wrong. And there's a kind of moment of reckoning when your child does something wrong and there is one thing that they tend to dread more than anything. It's your face. They don't want to look in your face and tell you. I mean, the bad report card, whatever it is, the, the broken vase, the fight with the sibling or something, there's kind of a, okay, come, come into my presence and tell me what's going on and what happens. I, I can't, I, I don't want to look up, I, I just anything but your face. Just don't, no eye contact here. The, the shame, shame the, the thing that's going, going on, on in my heart, heart stops me because it's like, like somehow, somehow the worst thing that could happen, happen right now is to open my eyes and let my eyes meet your eyes. People talk big about God's love and how great he is. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson recently. I said, I don't think anybody really believes that. People that throw out these, oh, God is love. God is love. If you really believe that, I think your life would be different. I'm not sure you actually believe that. The reality is when people get in God's presence, they hide their face. And because of our sin, God hides his face. But because of the mercy and the grace of God, beginning in this temple, in this copy, in this shadow of something greater to come, God makes a way and says, if you go down this path, if you go through this process, you can come into my presence and see my face. David has this desire. 
He knows what it means. It stirs up and increases. Oh, there's a way. Oh, there's access. I could know God. Okay, God, here's the one thing. Here's my one thing. I want to be with you. I want to see you. I want to know you. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Okay, there's the real sacrifice, the sacrifice that all the bulls and goats pointed towards, the, the real, real sacrifice, sacrifice, the true sacrifice, Christ, Christ on the cross, cross his, his blood shed, shed in our place, place. Now, now a sacrifice for you, for me, was made. So since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now David is bold enough to say, I want to see you. And now there's a way for him to see God. Oh God, hide not your face. Turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. But David knows something. And here he says something interesting. For my mother and my father forsaken me. That's an interesting phrase. We don't really have any record or account of David's father and mother forsaking him maybe it's a hypothetical situation we did have the one worship service where Samuel came and Jesse David's dad decided not to call David to the party now maybe that settled wrong in David's heart I don't know but it doesn't quite seem to fit we don't have any indication that his mom and dad actually forsook him but here is David's point even if my mom and my dad forsook me completely, Lord, you will not. Even the most committed of human relationships fail. The blood of Christ makes a bond of a covenant that is even stronger. God spoke through Isaiah the prophet in his Chapter 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And then God says this. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget, forget you. you. Can you hear that? Do you have the imagination big enough to realize that God's commitment, that the covenant, that he would be willing to send his son to die and shed his blood to make a way for you and me to enter into his presence? Can you believe, can you even imagine a kind of love that so surpasses even the love of a mother to her son? Even if that were to fail, God says the covenant that 
I've made will not. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Again, the worship team, come on up. I will not forget you. I will not turn my face from you. I will not forsake you because I have made a way to give you access into the place where I live. I'm giving you access to see my face because your sins have been paid for, not in part, but the whole. Now, friends, your confidence is complete. Now the story of your confidence is coming on its complete. You not only declared my name, but you've come. And you've come past the altar where the sacrifices have been made on your behalf. And you've come by the way of the cross in order to gain access to the Lord. Able now to come into his presence entirely. There's a lot of things that are easier for us to affirm than many of us do. You can sign off on statements of faith. You can sign off on statements of doctrine. They might come easily. I believe these things. But friends, can I ask you, are you confident in them? I could give you a quiz and guess and know and find out what you say you believe. My question is, are you confident in them? Are they changing you? Are they coming to you with an energy that makes your faith ready to act, ready to move, ready to progress, ready to perform? Do they empower and energize your faith, your belief? To cause you to be bold and ready to act, ready to worship, ready to serve, ready to give, ready to share, ready to speak, ready to encourage, ready to forgive. For all this and more, confidence is required. And confidence comes from trusting the Lord and longing for his presence. Let's stand.